0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with C.J. Hunt and Roy Wood Jr. on the neutral ground. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our revamped website at booksonpod.com. You can now search through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or even sort by category. For instance, pick the biographies and memoirs or music categories for episode number 133 with Talib Kweli on Vibrate Higher. Yo, this is Talib Kweli. Vibrating higher, with vibrate higher, you are checking out Books on Pod with Trey Ellen. Hello, readers. We're taking a break from books today for our second installment of Docs on Pod, where I chat with people behind intriguing documentaries. Today, that involves CJ Hunt and Roy Wood Jr., two comedians who contribute to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and are responsible for a new documentary titled The Neutral Ground. Directed by CJ and executive produced by Roy, The Neutral Ground opens the 34th season of American Documentary on PBS on July 5th. Guys, thank you so much for the time. CJ, how you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well, thank you. And Roy, thank you for the time. How are you today?
2: I am thankful and appreciative for anything that gets me away from my child, even for a brief minute. How old's
0: the child before we get going here? Because I have a four- and six-year-old at home, and I kind of feel the same way.
2: Right in between four, just turned five, thinks he knows everything about the world. He knows nothing.
0: That's right. They're as confident as teenagers, but they have the capabilities of toddlers. It's a fascinating uh, combination there. We just got to remind them of that. you know. We got to take them down a peg, remind them they don't know stuff. (laughs) That's right. You are stupid. Uh, So, CJ, uh, tell us a little bit about The Neutral Ground. What exactly is it and what got you started with this project?
1: Uh, The Neutral Ground is a film about uh, America's toxic relationship with the Confederacy. Um, So, you know, I know we all have exes in our life that we still have trouble letting go of. And we have still kept their stuff in our living room and it's causing problems. Um, And the film is that but for uh, America's relationship with the Confederacy. Um, So it started in uh, before I moved to New York to work in late night. I lived in New Orleans for nine years and uh, in 2015, uh, in the wake of the Charleston massacre, as uh, cities around the country were talking about bringing Confederate symbols down. Our white mayor, shout out to Mayor Landrew, he doesn't like to be described as a white mayor, but uh, Mayor Landrew <laughs> uh, said, "Hey, we're going to take down four Confederate monuments in the city." Uh, that is would have been the biggest uh, monument takedown that has happened in history. Uh, at the time, I went to go film it. Um, And I went to a city council meeting where folks are just standing up and being like, hey, you know what? Civil War wasn't about slavery. Slavery actually wasn't that bad. The first slave owners were black in Africa. And that level of strange storytelling that they were doing made us want to start filming. um, Okay, how deep does this misunderstanding about these monuments go?
0: And Roy, what got you involved with this documentary?
2: So CJ came to me. Um they were there were a little ways along in the production of it. But at this point, he was working at The Daily Show as a field producer. And so it, it's like any story like that started in New Orleans. Then Charlottesville happened. And then there was a really huge push, uh, a lot of a real pushback against a lot of the monuments and stuff that we have in this country. And it just kind of snowballed and. He just says, hey, man, if there's anything you can do to help. And I was like, yeah, this is meaningful. This deserves to be told because this is a conversation. I think what I really appreciated about what what CJ and his team put together was essentially a story that's local that speaks to something that's happening nationally. You know, every city has the statue thing that people are arguing about. But to really look at it, you know, at a much closer level at just what was happening in new Orleans and then how that kind of dovetails out into everything else in the country. I was just like, yeah, I'm on board, man. How can I help? How can I help produce executively?
0: So CJ, the city of new Orleans votes in December of 2015 to, and by the city, I mean, I guess the, uh, the government representatives for the city, they vote to get rid of four different Confederate statues and monuments. That were in and around the city. The most prominent, of course, was the Robert E. Lee statue that was atop a a really high pedestal that you could see from a lot of different parts of downtown. 60 feet tall, baby. 60 feet tall. But that was really only the beginning of this story. It wasn't the end. It wasn't until I think about two years later that these statues finally fell. As you were going through the process of filming, all the different people who were were standing up to speak about why the statue should be gone, and then the final vote itself, talking to the mayor of New Orleans as well, did you realize that this would drag out for two years before this would become an actuality?
1: I did not. I mean— I wonder if every every documentarian, their interviews are like, you know, I didn't realize it would go this long. I, I think we just need to tell documentary filmmakers that, you know, projects take six years. But, yeah, <laughs> I I thought that this would be basically a field piece. You know, in, in 2015, I was watching people like Roy Wood Jr. killing it on The Daily Show and really falling in love with that format of, you know, a five minute piece with a man with a microphone in his hand. Um, And I I genuinely thought that's what I'm going to do around this monument controversy. It's easy. Go to the meeting, talk to folks outside, (laughs) get them on mic saying wild stuff about, you know, (laughs) about (laughs) slavery and about how Robert E. Lee is a symbol for all of us. Make some jokes, pitch some silly monument replacements, uh, film the monuments coming down. It's a wrap, right? That's that's what I thought. And then, you know, It seemed like that's what would happen because the city council said, yeah, we're going to do this. And then the very next day they were sued. And then within a few weeks, a contractor's car was bombed and he had to leave the project. So all of a sudden you have this holding pattern where no one's taking down these monuments that the city has decided are going to come down, that they have permission to come down because they're being held up by lawsuits. And literally no one, everyone is too afraid to do the job. So... There, it's like, bro, you're not making a field piece. (laughs) One, this may take forever. And two, we can't find anyone who has the courage to face all these death threats to take these things down. So it was it's like thinking you're doing field piece and then realizing that something really dark is happening
2: and and you don't know
1: when it's gonna end.
2: Don't just say they firebombed a car, it was a very nice luxury sports car. Oh, yeah. It was a
1: Lamborghini. (laughs)
2: disrespectful
1: you know if white supremacy scares
2: you don't burn it up
1: yes Yes. yeah if white supremacy scares you and car bombing scares you you know we're not just talking about cars it's a lambo okay that's that's the price that we are paying you know for looking away
0: (laughs) uh you also traveled to monroe louisiana to find out more about something called the lost cause which i know you just touched on a few answers ago but for those who are unfamiliar with this thought process we'll uh, we'll generously call it a thought process what is the lost cause cj
1: the lost cause is a story about the civil war that the confederacy or the ex-confederacy wrote after the war you know so like we we rewrite stories all the time you know like um you know if if your girlfriend dumps you because you were cheating Maybe you're like, you know what? This really was about freedom. And that's the story that you tell all of your friends. And this is what happened with the Civil War. That if you look at all of the documents before the war happened, when the Confederacy is seceding, if you Google secession documents or you Google declarations of secession, the first thing these dudes are writing in all of their mini declarations of independence for each of these states is we are seceding to protect slavery. Mississippi says we are firmly identified with the institution of slavery, that it's the greatest material wealth on earth. They were not hiding how into slavery the Confederacy was before the war. But after the war, after they have lost and after there is, you know, sort of national shame about this institution, they begin changing the story about, you know what? This was actually about states' rights. Even though before the war, they were arguing for a larger federal government to keep states' rights out of like. Massachusetts and all those in Rhode Island and places that weren't returning their slaves. So it's it's a major sort of rebrand of what that war was about. And that rebrand is so successful that we are still fighting over it today.
0: Roy, most have heard about the post-Civil War era of Reconstruction, but is there an aspect of Reconstruction that in your mind isn't discussed enough?
2: I think it's the, well, we couldn't touch on it in the doc, but I think that there are generational ripple effects from slavery and the attempts to keep some form of it around, even after the fact, like when you think about like prison labor camps and things like that, and other things that started emerging after the end of slavery and also slavery ended, let's be real slavery ended, but then there also was a very lackadaisical enforcement of all of the new laws that came after it. So I think that there's, you know, by and large, just a serious lack of education on those issues and the ripple effects of those. But, you know, comedian Mike Birbiglia said something um, that's always stuck with me and in that in order for us to have a conversation, we both have to agree on what the truth is or we have to agree on the premise. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that we have in this country now. It's like, at least before it was just We disagree on what shade of blue the sky is. Now some people will say there is no sky. And how do you even have a conversation about rebuilding and reconstructing and really undoing the long-term ripple effects of slavery on people if we can't even agree that, hey, this flag stands for a lot. And even if you don't think it stands for a lot of that stuff, you got a lot of people on your squad, bro, that, kind of misusing the foot. So if it's that deep, maybe you stand up against them, but you don't even get that.
0: That's a conversation that I've had on my sports radio show where you have Confederate flags being removed from, let's say, high school mascots. And so people will inevitably bring up, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Yeah, it doesn't mean that to you. But when it means that to pretty much an entire other group of people, at what point do you respect their opinion on things as well and try and be decent to your fellow humans versus holding on to some some relic that really doesn't mean anything to anyone
2: in 2021? Tradition is so steeped in, you know, as comedian Doug Stanhope would say, tradition is dead people's baggage (laughs) and doing something solely because that's what we always done. And that's what it always meant is lazy and it doesn't give space for exploration and growth. And because it's not your pain doesn't mean that the pain doesn't exist.
1: And it's also uh, like, go ahead, CJ. I, I get nostalgia. You know, there are, There are plenty of things that, you know, I I love Michael Jackson music, you know, and I am nostalgic for it. But now I'm like, okay, I got to reckon with he hurt a lot of people, you know, and I think that that's what nostalgia does. It makes you go. All right, I'm not going to dig too deep into this. So I suspect that folks who feel a strong attachment to that flag of, okay, I grew up with this. This is my team. This means like don't mess with the South. I suspect that even those folks who feel that attachment also feel that kernel of like, and I'm not going to look too much into it. I'm not going to look into the fact that, you know, all these photos from, uh, from Jim Crow and from desegregation, have folks waving the Confederate flag at black marchers, you know, have folks, uh, you know, uh, waving the Confederate flag in Charlottesville and like how many white supremacists have to be really into your thing for you to wonder, okay, maybe this thing is kind of white supremacist.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> CJ,
0: you want... yeah. go ahead, Roy. This,
2: this, this, this isn't like in the 90s when black people all started wearing Tommy Hilfiger and then Tommy got on TV. He's like, wait a minute, that's not what I intended. Like, this is much deeper. <laughs> this is systemic <laughs> stuff yeah. yeah. If Roy and me were making pieces for The Daily Show
1: and, and, all the white supremacists online were like, "I love these pieces, CJ and Roy. Those are my guys. I love them." I would be like, "Yeah, we have to re- we have to take a second look at this writing because enough of that squad is into our stuff that maybe this means what we don't think it means."
2: Has anybody asked, like, racist? Like, can't you just make a new flag? Like, like if they just made a new flag, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Or hmm. just they just... need to
1: make a new flag for Southerners who are proud of stuff that have nothing to do with the legacy of slavery. You know, like just like a, a flag of sweet tea or other things that Southerners are like, yeah, yes. that's what I'm trying to talk about with <laughs> Southern pride. It's like you you telling me it's been 150 years and there's only one logo for the South. Every a, a, a minor league team has more logos than that. That's a great yeah, point. It's
2: just time to update the uniform. Put Nick Saban holding a sweet tea in a rib, and <laughs> that should be the new.
0: <laughs> That's what I'm proud of. Yeah. Oh man. Uh so CJ, you actually went to Kentwood, Louisiana for a Civil War reenactment. What did you learn in participating in the Civil War reenactment?
1: Um uh it is I, I learned um You know, if you're a black person, you got to go to a Civil War reenactment once in your life (laughs) just to just just to just to feel it. You know, like I'm not totally serious about that, but there is something there is a larger amount of safety than you would think about going to a Civil War reenactment uh, because, you know, these reenactors. Confederate neo-Confederate reenactors treat black people like you know, CPAC or the GOP treat Black people. They're just happy that you're there because it it helps them show that they are not racist, right? So my producing team was very, you know, nervous about me participating in that. They were like, is this safe? Just look at the amount of Confederate flags that are all around. Um, if, if stuff goes down and you need to leave, this is the plan. But people were genuinely happy to have me to sort of show off their world. And Parts of that world are really fun. It is fun to dress up. It is fun to go camping. It is fun to, you know, uh, have barbecues over a fire. Uh, The only not fun thing is that their entire understanding of what we are reenacting to them has nothing to do with race. And to them is a version of history where Slaves were really happy to be in the Confederate army and actually wanted to fight to save their masters because they loved them. And really this fight wasn't even about slavery. So it was a strange sort of sunken place moment about being like, everyone is smiling to my face, but there is something very dark about this version of history.
0: Roy, have you signed up for your first civil war reenactment
2: yet? I did one when I was 20 years old. Hmm. I My first ever acting role was for Florida Public Broadcasting, and I played a Union soldier and they, they shot it at the Battle of Old Lusty uh, just outside of Jacksonville. And no one told me wardrobe for the day. So I showed up in Jordan's <laughs> and had, they were black, thank God. But like they just said, wear black shoes, I didn't know black dress shoes, and I was, and the thing that's interesting is that even the black people that take part in these reenactments, they view themselves as historians, and griots almost, and honoring what happened by showing the truth to people. So when you show up in Jordan, you're kind of getting looked at a little sideways <laughs> when, you, when you walk on set. Um... It it definitely shows you that there's the the weirdest thing, CJ, I don't know if this happened to you at your reenactment, but the 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 onlooker, the spectators, they boo you as you walk by like when you're the union, they were booing us as we were walking into position to start the battle. Oh, it's like wrestling. You are playing the heel. People love to some people will
1: play union just because they love to play the bad guy and that the, that quote is in the movie he says you know we're dressed as the union And he's like oh we're the bad guys and i'm like we're the we're the bad guys he's like oh yeah the union is the bad guys everyone loves to boo them no one wants i can't get people to play union it's like it's like a pickup game and no one wants to no one wants to play union he has to scrape folks together just to play union yeah they, they are people love to hate that
0: in the reenactment world hmm. Edgard, Louisiana, is home to the Whitney Plantation, which may be the only museum in this entire country that actually focuses on the story of slavery from the slave side of things. CJ, what was the most shocking sight or discovery that you found upon your visit to Edgard, Louisiana?
2: Um, Roy, have you been to a plantation? Do you, do you no. choose to go to plantations? I have... Uh, not knowingly that I, I i don't think I've ever I'm trying to think. No. And I've done comedy in some weird places, but never got the old slavery work camp invitation. To yeah. The
1: to only, church. the only plantation I'd been to before this was uh, at a wedding to someone who I am no longer friends with. Cause I was like, why didn't you tell me this was going to be at a plantation? Um, but uh, it is a, I feel like as a black person, one is bracing, When you step foot on a plantation, because, you know, it is the equivalent of being Jewish and going back to a Nazi death camp. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there, so it is a sort of harrowing space to be in. Um, But the Whitney plantation is really an uplifting space as well, because... It is focusing on this thing that most plantation tours do not. Most plantation tours are like, and these windows were late addition. They weren't part of the original structure. And if you go over here, you'll see the mistress's garden. And it's like, let's talk about the thing. Let's talk about what this place existed for. Let's talk about that the majority of people who lived here were owned with the rights of of being the same as a cattle or or chairs. And Whitney is one of the few places that does that. And I, I don't think I expected... How sort of affirming just, just giving voice to that story is. And part of me in these spaces is like, yeah, this is for white people. I would get sort of a, a perverse excitement, sort of sitting on the side and watching white people on those tours. And I'm like, yeah, you listen, you listen to the tour guide. Yeah, sure. yeah, you tell them, tell them about the whips and tell them about the cabins. You know, like there is, a, there is a, an excitement I got in watching people have to be confronted with that. But what I did not expect is how much of that story is for me, too, like what telling that story gives back to black people. And I'm so used to thinking about the story of, of slavery as sort of required reading. We need white people to do. I didn't realize like, oh, no, we are getting humanity back by thinking about what we did in these spaces and how we resisted in these spaces.
2: Yeah.
0: Roy, what's the strangest place you've done stand up?
2: Racially speaking, a Confederate biker bar in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Wow. Seventy five dollars. I I don't remember tickets were seventy five? No, I got paid seventy five dollars, oh, okay. but that's minus gas. And you I just the one thing I remember about that gig is that like, back in those days you were still staying in like the the motel, the motor lodge where your car is right outside. Your like you can lock your car door from the shower type <laughs> motel. Right. Your car is that close to the door. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember a guy repeatedly asking me, where was I staying? And he would just come like every 15, 20 minutes. Where's your hotel? And my thing in those days is always, oh, you know what? I haven't checked it yet, man. I came here straight from Birmingham. I'm going to figure all that out when I leave here. Oh, okay. And 20 minutes of chit chat. This is all post-show. Yeah, well, man, we gotta grab a beer and then swing you on back by your hotel. Where where, where, you, where you stay? Did you figure out where you're staying? And, like, those are the gigs where I leave town after the gig and just drive back to Birmingham because it's weird. But, you know, it's... I'm not going to say it was necessary, but the thing that I'm most appreciative about with my stand-up arc in the early, you know, seven, eight years in the South was to make a living I had to perform in a lot of places in front of people who didn't agree with me politically. And you figure out ways to navigate those topics in those worlds, and it, it just... It made me more balanced as a performer, but after the show, it is get the hell out of here. And don't let somebody be flirting with you. Oh, hell no, hell no. Like if you mess around some white girl flirting with you after a show, you better get your ass away from me, white lady. (laughs) I gotta get back to Alabama where it's safe. Yeah.
1: Roy, do you feel like that made you more empathetic or more agile in, in the types of comedy that you do? Because I feel like on this film, you had like really good feedback of like, okay, no, you need to structure that joke like this, or we need a breath here. Do you feel like those days have have affected your mind in ways that, you know, it might not had you
2: not had to cut your teeth in there? It taught me how to get into topics that people don't agree with. Hmm. I have to make you like me first. I have to make you think, not think, but I have to, for you to recognize that I see and understand whatever it is your argument is about something. Like I used to have to, a bit that I did on my second hour special that was in defense of the Confederate flag, which is where it starts. It starts on, you know, you know, you know, keep the Confederate flag. And I could see people's, white people's energy shift. You know, the liberals are like, what? And the people that are like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. And I go, yeah. Besides, if you get rid of the flag, how am I going to know who the dangerous white people are? Hmm. And that's the turn. But it only happens if I can get you to open up a little bit. And it's not to say that every person that waves the flag is a rootin' tootin' racist. But as a black man at night stopping for gas in strange places, as I had to do for nine years before moving to L.A., the flag was just a little hint that, you know what, I'm just not going to stop here. Let's keep going till we get to a bigger truck. Let's wait till we find a Flying J or Travel America. (laughs) We'll pull over at one of
1: those. That's actually the joke that made me want Roy as EP. I don't know if I ever said this to you, Roy, but yeah, it was, you know, the first the first lines of his album are. But if we take down the Confederate flag Hmm. and and it's like Roy, unlike Roy is the best comedian I know at being able to walk folks to a place that they were not ready to be walked to. Um, so even in making this, you know, like I, I would listen to Roy's albums and we would have conversations about how he would get into certain things because that's what I want the film to do. You know, like I I want to I use humor in this film to be able to get you to a spot that you weren't ready to be and you didn't know that we were going to go.
0: All right, last question. I want to uh, have each of you guys answer it. And I'm going to preface it by saying that most of the statues that have been removed here in Austin, at the University of Texas, uh, good riddance to those statues. Most of them are Civil War figures. A lot of the statues were put up in the 1960s as some sort of weird response to the civil rights movement happening at that time. But is there a point where protesting for and the actual removal of statues becomes a bit counterproductive? Like I've seen examples out in San Francisco where uh, you had statues of individuals. I think one instance it was a, a former slave who had escaped and created a better life for themselves in the Bay Area. Is there a point where that does become counterproductive for you guys? And CJ, we'll start with you here. First, I wanna shout out I wanna shout out Austin, man, because y'all
1: removed your Jefferson, y'all relocated your Jefferson Davis on the UT campus indoors. As one of the first relocations while New Orleans was like fretting about like, oh, what are we going to do And all these other cities are like, is it even possible? UT just quietly moved your dude inside. And while everyone was going crazy about like, are they destroying them? It was like, no, we're just putting them inside. So there, there was an amount of sanity and forethought and, you know, ahead of the gameness in Austin that I hope, I hope all of you are very proud about in terms of these things can be moved history goes into museums and that is the way forward um so i thought that was amazing you know is there a is there a point of counterproductiveness yeah of course there's always an overcorrection right like whenever gets something gets going there's always an overcorrection we had folks taking down statues of grant or you know uh you know having conversations about lincoln or you know overcorrecting. And often it's like, get your white lib friends in check. Because a lot of these folks, you know, going too far in the overcorrection are just sort of like, white anarchists who were like, yes, down to all statues. And it's like, well, hold up. That's Frederick Douglass. Let's just take your hands off him and and figure it like you do some more Googling to figure you out which Uncle of the statues. You get Uncle Ben
2: off that rice box right now. And we were like, yeah. And then they were like, Aunt Jemima too. Like, what? Okay. okay, And Miss Buttersworth. Is she even black? Is she black? Cause she's brown. Sure. The bottle's
1: brown. But how, how does she identify? But, you know, I think the point is not which statues are we taking down, but how are statues being used to talk about the larger set of symbols of white supremacy that masks themselves as everyday and immovable? So what we saw last summer, I think the measure isn't how many statues came down, but how many people were gathering at Confederate statues to make a point about white supremacy in the police force. So I think that that's the measure, not like, did y'all mess up on a statue coming down? But what is this
2: conversation being used to highlight? How about you, Roy? I think that I agree with what CJ saying, just in a sense that, you know, there is an overcorrection. But I think you find a median and you'll get back to that. So I'm OK with that. I'm OK. Like, you just got to look at it like this. A statue is just it's just an old school tweet. And every now and then you delete tweets, right? Like, it, like gonna, <laughs> a statue is just a 1800s Instagram post. It's a picture and there's a caption underneath. Is that not Instagram? So it's the same thing. so Damn. if you if wow. maybe we need to frame it like that, CJ and people will be less fanatical about it. just another uh, news today, police deleted two tweets from the Confederate Park.
1: Yeah, I was younger on this one. I was on one when I made this. Uh, you know, it's it no longer represents who I am today. I- I'm going to take this down.
2: It's okay to take down a tweet even if it weighs 4,000 pounds and is made of granite.
0: Guys, thank you so much for the movie and uh thank you for the time today. I think this is a film that uh, a lot of people will hopefully see starting on July 5th and Some already are there, but maybe some aren't quite there just yet, and it gives them a newfound perspective on things. Greatly appreciate the time today, CJ. Thanks so much. And thank you, Roy. Thank you. Join me next time when I chat with wildlife biologist and National Geographic magazine journalist Doug Chadwick on Four-Fifths a Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that might just save us all. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and subscribe at BooksOnPod.com. Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.